if we're talking about a five day stage race, I, I wouldn't hold anything back on any of the days. I would, I would race every single day. Like it's a one day race. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Matchbox Podcast, powered by Ignition Coach Go. I'm your host, Adam Sabin, and we're back from our little mid-season break and ready to bring you the training content you've been patiently waiting for. Today, we're talking about the stage race effect, whether or not you can train at too low of intensity, and when heart rate should be considered overpower. Today's show is also brought to you by Flow Formulas. I just got back from racing the Migration Gravel Stage Race in Kenya, and thanks to the single-serving race tubes offered by Flow, my race day nutrition was simple as can be. Each morning, I just popped open a few tubes of my favorite flavors, poured them straight into my bottles in a hydration pack, filled it up with water, and bam, ready to go. So if you want to make your training and race day nutrition simple and reliable too, head over to flowformulas.com today and use the discount code IGNITIONPODCAST10 for 10% off your first order. As always, if you like what you hear, please share this with your friends and leave us a five-star review. And if you have any questions for the show, we have a new method for reaching out. You can hit up our brand new email at matchboxpod at gmail.com with email titled the Matchbox Podcast, or head over to ignitioncoachco.com and fill out the Matchbox Podcast listener question form. All right, let's get into it. All right, what's up, guys? Back from a little mid season break. Yeah. Um, for those of you listening out there, if you haven't heard of mid-season breaks go back to episode 17 from last year <laughs> where we also took a mid-season break from the podcast and came back and talked about why mid-season breaks are important for your training plan so if you're curious check that one out um today we got a couple couple listener questions that we're gonna get to um this first one i actually don't know who sent it in um but they say hey drew i know that uh i know that you know that aaron couldn't do transylvania epic because of her collarbone but you may not know that I am racing it solo now. So I'm guessing this is a friend of Drew's, which unfortunately Drew's not on the podcast. But And also, um, unfortunately, okay. Transylvania Epic already happened. It's okay. She, it's, it's not specific to TSE. Um, okay. All right. Cool. So it says, it gave me an, an idea for your podcast. Somehow my legs progressively got better over the course of the week. This is completely counterintuitive. I figure you guys have, probably have all some kind of experience racing multi-day events, and maybe you could talk about it. I'd be curious to know if there's a good explanation for it beyond just the fact that you're getting used to suffering each day. Hmm. That's uh yeah. Getting used to suffering each day. I mean, maybe psychologically that's part of the reason, but I think it goes a lot deeper than that. And this is, this is actually, it is counterintuitive to what a probably somebody who doesn't do stage racing might think they might think that you get more tired throughout a stage race and performance goes down, which does happen to some people, but, um, for a shocking number of people, uh, there's something called the stage race effect where you are actually putting out better power numbers, despite probably feeling quite sore towards the end of the stage race. Um, it's part of the reason why we see, you know, grand tour riders doing such crazy numbers up these climbs when they're three weeks into a grand tour and people, people say, Oh, that's so crazy. They're so fit. How are they putting out those numbers? I mean, they are so fit. They're literally the fittest people in the world, but also there's a little bit of the stage race effect going on there. Um, just a personal anecdote. I, I mean, I remember when I did the Pisca stage race, I, back in 20, I think this was 2017 or 2018, 
at the time I put out my best 20 minute power that I had ever done in my life on the last day, day five of the Pisca stage race up a 20 minute climb. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, what this, this phenomenon is, is not uncommon and, um, I'm not surprised to hear that it was happening to you at TSE. So do you know any of like the, the physiology behind why this effect takes place? I, I mean, I could make some guesses, but it just, it hasn't, it hasn't really been studied enough. Um, like I've, I've looked for a little bit for research on it, especially when I'm doing uh, research on block periodization. There is some mm-hmm. pretty decent research on block periodization, but most of that research looks into what happens to the body a month after you do a block period. And for those that don't know, you know, block periodization is kind of like doing a stage race in your training. You know, you're doing five days of intensity back to back in training. And then a week later or, or a month later, you're seeing pretty huge benefits from that. Um, so How about you, Caitlin, have you, have you done any stage racing? Yes, I've actually done TSC, but the first stage race I did was Breck Epic two years ago. And there's a lot going on with Breck, um, just because you're so high in altitude and whatnot. But I will say, you know, same thing happened to me where, you know, first day, all right, you get the feel for it. Second day, pretty difficult. Um, just you're waking up early. You're not recovering super well because of the altitude, um, probably starting to get into that bit of a calorie deficit. Um, and then third day, just absolutely exhausted. So Breck Epic is six days. And then um, day four, things started to come around. And I will say, like, with that being my first stage race, it wasn't that all of a sudden I felt incredible and was putting out great power numbers. It was just that I felt kind of like I was on autopilot and the legs just knew what to do every day. And actually day six, it was a shorter stage, but it ended up being the best I felt over the entire thing. So there's definitely something okay. to it. So yeah, kind of similar to your experience, Dylan, that you were just talking about from yeah. this guy. I, I think that also, um, I think that, that, you know, your body has, uh, um, you know, mechanisms in it that, that either promote fatigue or not fatigue. Um, and when you come off of that stage race, there's a little bit of a delay before that fatigue hits you. And, and, and I think that when you are doing hard efforts back to back to back, um, your, you know, your autonomic nervous system and all of that, it's just in a heightened stress response and it's never coming off of that stress response. But if you give yourself enough rest time, your body will realize that, that, okay, it's a rest period. It's okay to unleash this fatigue on this person. And then it'll really hit you, you know, probably three oh, or yeah. four days after the event. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I know that th- like this question didn't really get into advice, you know, or wasn't asking for advice on stage racing, but do you have any advice for folks out there who might be going into a stage race on how they can set themselves up for this kind of success? Because I know that you can also, you know, compromise those latter days and have really bad, you know, last couple days if you, mm-hmm. you know, get some things wrong. So wh- what are some tips that you guys have for, for anyone who is, who is going into, you know, a stage race? Yeah, meal well, prep. a huge, huge part of Caitlin, what were you saying? I said meal prep. Um, just have everything ready to go. Um, I, it depends on where the stage race is, but you might 
have that altitude effect where you're not super hungry um, or just your body's working so hard that, you know, your appetite starts to act up on you, but you need to be eating. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, recovery in general is a huge part of stage racing, right? So anything that you can do to maximize that, uh, particularly eating and sleeping, there are obviously other recovery methods out there, but they pale in comparison to the difference that eating properly and sleeping enough will make. And what about like pacing strategies or, you know, metering efforts early into the race? Yeah. So, you know, there's this question of like, should I hold back on the first day because I've got four more days after this, or should I just go as hard on the first day as if it was a one day race? Right. Um, and I'm going to be honest, I don't think that you should hold anything back on any of the days, uh, because, because of what we're talking about here, because of the stage race effect. Um, I don't think there for, for a very fit athlete, I don't think there's a need to hold anything back to save, save stuff for later in the week. I know that grand tour riders talk about that and they talk about, Oh, you know, he went too hard in week one. So now he's suffering in week three. If we're talking about a five day stage race, I, I wouldn't hold anything back on any of the days I would, I would race every single day. Like it's a one day race. I agree with that. And even if you're an amateur athlete and just trying to survive the thing, still, I wouldn't go out there and just tool around because there's a fine line between pushing too hard and then going too easy and being out there for hours longer than you need to, because then you cut into your recovery time and being out on the bike longer than than needed is just, um, that can be just as fatiguing. It's more, you know, exposure in the sun, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so I, I can I can attest to that. Um, I just got back from a stage race in Africa, and um, not because I underpaced myself, but because of other physical issues that I was dealing with. I was out on course for like two to three hours longer than I expected to each day, and that that like really took a lot out of me. Like I would have much yeah. rather just been able to ride hard and get done with the stage and start recovery, and you mm-hmm. know had that extra three hours to just yeah have low key recovery than being on the bike in the middle of the sun in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. Like there is that compromise of, you know, going too easy and then being out on the bike longer Then you, you know, you risk under fueling at that point too and under hydrating and, and yeah, mm-hmm. like you said, cutting into that recovery time. Yeah. Anything else to add here? Um, I don't think so. I, I will say one thing that, you know, the, the, the stage race effect I think is something that not many people know about. And I think it's something that if, if more people knew about it, I think more people would be open to stage racing. I think a lot of people get, mm-hmm. uh, they get intimidated by stage races and mm-hmm. they think that there's no way that they could get through three, four, five, six days of hard racing in a row. Um, but I think if you, the more educated you get on like the effects of, of, you know, the stage race effect, um, the more confidence you can have going in that, you know, you could push yourself to that limit. And it also helps too, like when you, when you go to these races, you know, assuming that you're taking the time off of work and whatnot, and you're not trying to like work in the evenings, but when you only have bike racing to worry about and you don't have all the other day-to-day life stresses come, you know, that, that are compounding and affecting your recovery ability, um, that makes it a lot easier too, because all you have to do is think about, you know, your bike race, recover afterwards, getting good sleep, setting up your bike for the next day. Yeah. Yeah. Cycling is kind of a unique sport in that stage racing is actually 
pretty common in bike racing and all other endurance sports or honestly, well, I don't want to say sports in general. Cause I guess, you know, there's like uh, golf tournaments or tennis tournaments where you might be playing day after day. But, um, as far as endurance sports go, it's not super common to see, uh, it's you, it's usually there's, there's like one, there's one race, there's one event and you need to, you need to perform well there. And of course there are plenty of bike races like that, but it is super common in bike racing to have stage racing, which is probably the reason why we even know about this in the first place. Although I agree with you, Adam, not a lot of people know about it. Yeah, that's a good point. And I'd be kind of curious to know if, if there are such things as like running stage races or triathlon stage races, like I think, I think there are, but they're not, they're not commonplace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the ultra marathon world, I know there are, well, I mean, it's still how fast you can get from point A to point B, but the distance is just so long that it requires, you know, mm-hmm. some sleep in between days. So yeah, kind of like yeah, a I, I yeah, I don't quite, I don't quite consider like ultra multi day events to be the same as stage racing, um, because yeah, it's a little bit different. It, yeah, because it ends up counting more as like one long continuous effort. And, and you do mm-hmm. have to approach that effort a lot different than you would like single races, like truncated sure. races, multiple, multiple days in a row. Yeah. Um, also at the, you know, at the highest level, uh, like for example, at the highest level of, let's just say marathon running, you never see, uh, you never see like a running stage race where there's five days in a row of like marathon like distance. Whereas at the highest level of cycling, uh, for example, road cycling, stage racing, that is, that is road pro road, road racing is stage racing. There's um, nothing there. Are, yeah. For the most part. Yeah, the, yeah. There are one day races, but you know, Tour de France is the biggest bike race in the world. It's an, you know, it's a three, three week race stage race. Right. Okay. So we can hop on to the next question here. Uh, so this one is on heart rate zone two heart rate. Um, and in particular, like, can you can you ride at too low of intensity? So he says, question for your podcast after, after watching uh, Dizzle's video. What is the low end of zone two and can you train too low? His video says <clears throat> zone two is 75% of max heart rate. Rough calculations, but sufficient here. What if you just did 50%? For example, if my max heart rate is 200 beats per minute, high zone two would be 75% of that at 150 beats, low zone two would be 50%, so 100 beats per minute. So yeah, he wants to know, like, can you train too low when you're doing endurance or zone two riding? The answer is absolutely yes, you can train too <laughs> low. <laughs> um, so uh, the so if we're talking specifically about heart rate, um, here, let me do some, let me do some rough calculations here because honestly I've got the power. So if you're training under 55% of your FTP, so your functional threshold power, that is probably too low to be in zone two. Um, and hold on real quick. Because we're just with these zones, we're just kind of guesstimating what our actual zone two is correct the only way to really truly figure that out is with like blood lactate testing yeah true um so hold on i'm trying to i i feel embarrassed that i don't remember what what the border between recovery heart rate zone and endurance heart rate zone is off the top of my head but i'm trying to look it up here for, for um, heart rate you're talking 
Yeah, for heart rate. I, I remember it off. I remember every single, like, the border between every single zone for power because I use power way more. But I can't remember the border between recovery heart rate zone and endurance heart rate zone off the top of my head here. Um, but yeah. but the answer is yes. You can, you can train too easy uh, if you're trying to do a zone two ride. Um, and the reason for that is because, I, I mean... I think that the reason should be obvious if like, for example, if you're just sitting on a couch, you're not training your zone two. So obviously that intensity is so low that you're not training zone two. So then, okay, the question is, at what point are you training zone two? Because obviously there is a point at which that is happening. And hold on. (laughs) I should have looked, I should have looked, I should have looked this up before. Uh, but we never, we never go over the questions beforehand. These, these, this is always all unscripted. So, um, so, so the, the, like the, the zone model that I use on training peaks has Mm -hmm. zone two endurance or, you know, endurance training zone two at 65 to 75% of max heart rate. Yeah. Yeah. So it's slightly, it's slightly different than, and, and the, the heart rate zones are going to be slightly different than, um, power zones. Right. Um, but yeah, so probably if you're under 65% of your, yeah, if you're under 65% of your max heart rate, you're no longer training your zone two. Um, there's a, there's a pretty good chart that we've used on this podcast before that shows you the physiological benefits of each of the zones. And if you look at that, um, if you look at recovery zone, you know, riding at recovery zone, there's, there's not no physiological benefit, but there's very little there's no, it's, it's, um, you know, it's, if you, if you're riding at recovery zone for hours and hours, it's, it's almost a waste of your time. Um, so the answer is absolutely. You can go too easy to be in a zone two ride. Yeah, and and you know what, Dylan, what you're talking about here is is sustained time in zone one. Mm-hmm. You know, so like if you're descending down a hill, or you know, if yeah, you're right. talking with your friend, and all of a sudden your heart rate slips below, you know, that sixty percent mark, let's say, um, mm-hmm. you know, sixty sixty five percent of max heart rate, it's okay. Like it's it's not the yeah, end of the world. Not, you just don't want to camp there for the entire ride. Um, right. Exactly. Exactly. That, you know, that's just it's it's not that it's going to be counterproductive. Like it's not that it's going to be detrimental, but you're just not going to get nearly the the benefits from yep. as you would from training in zone two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so you know, for example, uh, Siler uses a three zone model where zone anything that's zone two and below on a traditional five zone or six or seven zone model um, is considered zone one. Right. And I like the simplicity of that a lot. But I think what that misses is that because if you're using that model, then you could easily make the assumption that any intensity in that zone one is beneficial, which uh, would be a wrong assumption. So while I like the simplicity of that, I think that 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 probably, um, you know, Maybe that maybe that zone one in the three zone model, the start of zone one should actually be at the bottom of zone two in a typical zone model. 
And then if you're anything below that, then maybe you're just not even training at that point. Although I do, I do think that at certain times there is benefit to doing a zone one ride, but for the most part, in his zone model, like, you know, a lot of his research has been done with non-cyclists. So looking at runners and cross-country skiers, um, Mm -hmm. I think in particular is kind of the, the bulk of, of his, um, of his study subjects in those two modalities are actually quite difficult to, to spend time in active recovery. Like, I don't know if you've ever mm-hmm. gone out for a jog, but like it's kind of difficult to run slow enough that your heart rate gets like, would get into zone one. Right. Um, you know, so like, you know, he, his, his subjects are likely spending all that time in zone two, mm-hmm. just, just by the nature of the modality that they're, that they're using. Yeah. And same with cross country skiing. Unless you're like just out there kind of, you know, scooting around. But if you're if you're actually like exercising, it's the same thing. Like it's it'd be difficult to spend time in zone one unless you're like super proficient and conditions are like pristine. Mm-hmm. Most people find yeah, this is an interesting question because usually people are, are question, you know, the questions around zone two training are usually around, you know, the top of zone two, like, is this the top of zone two? What's the top of zone two? Always talking about whatever the top of zone two is. Uh, so it's interesting to hear a question about the bottom of zone two. And it's something that coaches in general don't talk about as much because I feel like most athletes have trouble staying in zone two, not because they're going too easy, but because they're going too hard. Yeah. 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 I'll, I'll see it with some athletes every once in a while. And for me, it can be an indicator that maybe an athlete's getting a little too overtrained or fatigued, Mm -hmm. you know, and they just like, you know, they see five hour endurance ride on their schedule and they just go out and they're like spend, you know, 75% of that time in zone one. And I'm like, maybe they're just tired, you know, like maybe, mm-hmm. you know, cause if you don't have the motivation or the energy to get yourself to sustain that zone two, and you're just constantly dropping down into zone one, then yeah, yeah. It, it could be an indicator of fatigue. And you know, that's a great point to bring up too. I would say that if you, if you get on the bike, a, a good indication that you need to take a rest day or maybe even multiple rest days is if you're so tired that zone two feels unsustainable. If, if you're so fatigued that, you know, it's it's very difficult for you to even sustain zone two, um, alarm bells should be going off in your head. Right. That, that something's not right. Probably that you need rest is is the reason, but it could be a number of different reasons. Um, okay. Well, let's hit one last question here. All right. Um, and this question is on zone two heart rate versus power. So... We've talked about this in the past, um, but we'll touch on it again here. So question for the Matchbox. On zone two rides, should we worry about staying in the correct heart rate or power zones? For example, when you're riding at zone two power, but your heart rate starts creeping into tempo, should you ignore the heart rate and continue on power? I hope this question makes sense. Thanks. Mm. And it does make See, sense. So, this is very so this is yeah. this is what I was just this is what I was just talking about about how we we talk a lot more about the top of zone two and like what dictates the top of zone two. I think we have hit this question before on the podcast, but it's it's not bad to hit it again. Um, so you know the this is this is this is kind of the big question um, like that researchers are looking into right now and that we don't necessarily have the best answers for right now. Um, and I think that, you know, as of right now with the information that we currently have, I think it's probably a good idea to, 
use both power and heart rate. And if you're, if you're getting outside of either one of those, back it down. Um, if that makes sense. So if you're, if you're at your zone two power, but your heart rate is out of zone two, back it down. So your heart rate gets back in zone two. If you're for some reason at zone two heart rate, but your power is out of zone two, back down your power so that both are in zone two, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Now, this is kind of a crossover question, you know, follow up question to, to the last question in combination with this question. What do you, are you would there would you have any concern with an athlete whose heart rate stays in zone two? You know, they're like they're focusing on keeping mm-hmm. their heart rate in zone two, but in order to do so, you know, let's say later into a ride, three, four, five hours into a ride, they're forced to drop their power back down into zone one. Right. Yeah. So I think that probably what you know what's going on there is that your zone two one hour into a ride is actually not the same as your zone two five hours into a ride. Um, it, it changes. So this is, this is one of the things that they're trying to get to the bottom of is, is like, what is, what is your blood lactate doing an hour into a ride at zone two versus five hours into a ride at zone two? Uh, it'll probably get a little bit more. We'll probably get a little bit more clarity on this question when that research comes out. I would, I would err on the side of keeping your heart rate in zone two in that situation. Yeah, I agree. And as you become, as you become more trained. So if they were to maintain the same power, you would then obviously see their heart rate drift. So we call that cardiac drift. And there's a metric that you can use to track this and track, um, if this is changing at all called heart rate decoupling on training peaks. Um, so that's something to keep in mind that as you become more trained, you shouldn't see that as much um, as you do in the early stages mm-hmm. of your training. Yeah, and, and because, oftentimes yeah, the, I'll yeah, oftentimes I'll use aerobic decoupling as <clears throat> as a metric for how well established an athlete's base is. Mm-hmm. Both in you know early in the season, you know, kind of an indicator of when it's when when the athlete's ready to transition out of base season and start doing more. Um, you know, higher intensity work, but also as an indicator later in the season, whether or not we need to go back and re-up some of their base training. You know, if, if I start to see, car, you know, cardiac drift or aerobic decoupling increasing, you know, mid-season, that's kind of an indicator to me that, hey, maybe we've gotten a little too far out of our base, you know, aerobic conditioning, and we need to go back and maybe do a block of just, just kind of, you know, base training with some maintenance intensity um, in order to help sustain the rest of the season. Yeah, 100%. And I'm going to throw it out there just so that it gets mentioned. It's really hard to do a zone two ride on the mountain bike. Um, so keep that in mind if um, you're truly trying to do a zone two ride. Um, just be aware that those punchy climbs and whatnot, it's going to be, it's going to be difficult to maintain zone two. And if um, you do it anyway, and at the end of the ride that you see your power was super low, um, make sure you're looking at your heart rate and your heart rate was probably in the correct zone. If you were trying your best, um, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Yeah. I mean, power in general is lower on a mountain bike. You know, if you look at a mountain bike race, a five hour mountain bike race versus, I don't know, a five hour road race, power is going to be lower in the five hour mountain bike race, just, uh, as a general rule of thumb. So I wouldn't freak out about power being lower on a zone two mountain bike ride. Do you yeah, feel like that's sufficient for an endurance ride if like their heart rate pretty much stayed yeah, I, 
in the yeah, in zone two, but they're okay. Yeah, I think that's fine. I don't think that's an issue. Yeah, and you know, it's 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 oftentimes terrain dependent, but you know, what I like to see athletes doing sometimes and what I like to do personally too is, you know, if you're going out for a long endurance ride on the mountain bike, like mix it up, ride some road, ride some gravel. Um, you know, maybe you take that fire road to get to the top and then you hit the single track coming down because it's going to be a lot easier to sustain consistent power on, you know, a little bit more predictable terrain than you might get from some steep technical, like switchbacky, um, single track climbs. So, you know, that's, that's an option for folks too, is, you know, if you don't, you know, if you're going out for a mountain bike ride, don't get so focused that you have to hit single track the whole time, like try and link together some different trails and, and mix it up a little bit. And that's how you can make your, your quality for that ride a little bit higher too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Anything else to add here? Uh, no, I think that was pretty good. Yeah. That's Sweet. all I got. Well, I'm excited to be back post midseason break for all those athletes out there. If you haven't taken your midseason break yet, um, yeah, go ahead and listen to episode 17 and get some tips and start planning for one because everyone, everyone deserves a midseason break this time of year. <laughs> Sweet. All right. We'll see you guys. See ya. See ya. All right, folks, thanks for tuning in for the latest episode of the Matchbox Podcast. Like I said at the beginning, you can send any questions or topic suggestions to matchboxpod at gmail.com with email title, the Matchbox Podcast. Links to each of our social media pages can be found in the show notes. Tune in next week for another endurance training-related discussion and learn more about how you can find that extra match for your next big event. Catch you all soon. Let's go.